Hi everyone, uh, Prashant here, back again with a session on PM across the world. And today we are in Egypt, one of the oldest civilization, and now a tech boom happening there. And we have Nabil here. Nabil is VP of product of Instaburg. Instaburg is a spoon to become unicorn in Egypt, if I'm right, Nabil. Uh, hopefully, like we're we're working on it. Great. So Nabil is going to represent Egypt and going to walk us what it is like to be a PM in Egypt, the tech ecosystem there, and all the boom there happening. Nabil, if you would introduce yourself briefly, that would be great. Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, for having me, uh, Prashant, and um, and welcome to the community, whoever whoever I'm talking to uh, in the end. Um, my name is Nabil Mohammed. I um, I'm currently the VP of product at uh, at Instabug, as Prashant just uh, just said. Uh, I've been doing that for just under a year and a half. Uh, before that, I spent um, segments of my career at Amazon and Microsoft and Vodafone. I got an MBA done in the middle uh, at uh, at Harvard Business School, which was which was very rewarding. And so uh, most of my career has been focused on on product um, first as you know as backend logistics and then uh, as as B2C like direct B2C which was part of Amazon Prime Video uh, and now as B2B SaaS so some changes there uh, but uh, but mostly the product discipline focuses on the same things looks for the same competencies uh, which which I imagine we'll talk about today. So looking forward and, and, and good to meet everyone. Thanks a lot, Nabil. And that's actually a very good thing which you mentioned, uh, that your experience at Harvard was very rewarding. A lot of people have this confusion when they try to become PM that is the MBA necessary? Should they do MBA outside uh, their home country in USA probably to get into the product management? But you have been product manager before and you have been product manager after. Can you tell what was the value add which MBA added, the Harvard experience added, and would you recommend people to go for it just for the sake of getting into product management? Got it. So um, getting a uh, an MBA that's halfway across the world that takes up two years and is expensive is... Um, is is not an easy decision. So a lot of people want to do it because, you know, they want the brand name or they want the validation that they can, that they meet that bar. And, 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 and that's it. Like they don't, they have no other reason to do it. And if these are the only reasons, then I strongly advise against it. Um, the two good reasons I think to do an MBA is a, if you genuinely don't know what you want to do with the rest of your career. So yes, I was doing kind of product before and I did kind of product after, but they were very different scopes, very different industries. And Vodafone doesn't really have a traditional product manager function. It has like someone in marketing who designs the promos and looks at the usage and migrations and stuff. But that person is like, there's at least two departments between them and where developers sit. They don't, you know, whiteboard things and flow charts uh, right next to engineers. And, and, you know, they definitely don't learn things like SQL or, uh, or, or kind of go deep into data visualization. They're just very concentrated on 
analyzing usage and kind of eking out um, dollar upsides. Um, but traditional product management or modern product management in, in innovative tech companies is totally different. And so for me, the MBA was tremendously useful in kind of uh, exposing me to a variety of different industries. Because to me, I was very agnostic going into it. I was like, do I want to do consulting? Do I want to do banking? Do I want to do private equity? Do I want to stick with product, but go deeper into tech and far away from commodities, which is ultimately what I did. And so that's the first reason where an MBA can, can be useful. Uh, you generally don't know what you want to do, but you want to be surrounded by a group of smart, diverse people who come from all walks of life and all different industries that can weigh in uh, on, on, on what you think you want to do and kind of tell you, well, what are the, what does the day in the life look like and whatnot? And all throughout, you get these case studies that you study and get tested on uh, that, uh, that, that, that are kind of, that il like illuminate even more how certain industries are like. Um, the second good reason to do an MBA is if you already know what you want to do, but it's uh, right now your profile just isn't, doesn't meet that bar. Like just on paper, nobody's going to even interview you if you, you know, if you don't have a certain pedigree and, um, and, and you need to get into a top school to gain that, to, to gain that access. So let me give you an example. Let's say you graduate from the American University in Rome, right? So not a particularly elite college or anything um, with a, with a 3.2 GPA. And you did that because like, oh, in undergrad, you just like, you lived your life, you made a lot of friends, you went to a lot of parties and you didn't really pay attention to your studies. And then you graduate and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm ambitious, unfortunately. <laughs> and I would like to be a banker. I, I definitely want to go to Goldman Sachs. I read everything about them, but Goldman Sachs won't even touch my CV right now. And who can blame them? Like there's like, 10,000 people from Princeton, Yale, Harvard, IITs, MIT, whatever, um, Stanford, vying for like the same five positions. And so I need some sort of advantage. I need to get in that pool so that I can ultimately access that industry the way that I want. And so I need an MBA from Harvard. I need an MBA from London Business School. Um, so that's the second good reason. But if you know what you definitely, if you definitely know what you want to do, and there are ways to access that pool of, of opportunities right now, then doing an MBA is actually not only um, irrelevant, it's, it's actually a deterrent. Like it, it holds you back two years and you're going to end up uh, doing this, like exerting a lot of effort that's quite orthogonal to the effort that you make during an MBA. Uh, just to to get to the right people, to get in front of the right faces, to get the right interviews, sharpen your profile, your profile in the right way, which you already have to do if you if you want a certain vacancy. So whether or not I I have an MBA, if I want to get into Amazon, I'm going to have to talk to Amazonians. I'm going to have to sharpen my CV in the way that uh, that Amazon relates to. I'm going to study a lot about their leadership principles. Um, uh, I'm going to get people to refer me. And so if I already know that this is what I want to do, 
um, then I'll just I'll just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Especially if I know that I'll be considered if I do all the right things. But uh, but getting an MBA anyway in that context doesn't make much sense. So for me, the first reason is what applied, uh, and it's why I found it tremendously just useful and fun and and everything. So okay. I hope that answers your question. Definitely. I mean, I have been an, on that crossroad where we were planning to. I mean, I was planning to. Should I do? Should I not do? What should be the plan? I decided not to do because I wanted to uh, have my own startup or company, let's say. And I thought, if let's give this a try first, and then we'll see if I need to do an MBA or not. And so far, it's going great. Let's see how it goes. But yeah, uh, going forward to your journey, you worked in Microsoft, you worked in Amazon, and now you're working in Instagram. So these two are giants and top of the you know the hype chain companies, and you are working in Instagram, which is upcoming startup and doing great. They are you have done Series A now. You are trying to do Series B, but shifting from that environment, which is very enterprise level, to uh, Instagram, what has been the key differences you have observed overall in a company? Um, sorry, I I. Uh, I... I missed the question. I, I think I didn't properly understand the, the, the actual question statement. So basically, the work style in Amazon, Microsoft versus Instagram, what have been the key challenges or differences you have seen from company perspective? Um, okay, so there's two different types of differences there. One of them is the difference between working at a startup and working at a, at a big enterprise. And the other is the difference between working at a, a tech company um, in an emerging market um, where there's not a lot of precedence and not a lot of unicorns and not a lot of enterprises that came out of being startups. Uh, and, and then the difference between that and, and doing that in a very established market where there's plenty of tech enterprises and it's, it's, it's a 50-year-old industry at least. Um, so, which one of them would you would you would you like me to kind of focus on? Uh, second one, because that is going to be our conversation more towards uh, where we would explore Egypt more. So, if you can tell more from that domain, working in emerging market like Egypt versus working in Seattle, which is, as you mentioned, uh, established market. Uh, got it. So, with um... With emerging, uh, with sorry, with mature markets, there are certain things that you just take for granted, all right? Like the talent is already concentrated in certain pools um, all over the continent. And even if you can't find exactly what you want in the same city, there's all these processes to move people from, I don't know, New York to San Francisco and you pay for their relocation. And like the whole thing is, is very much on autopilot. Uh, there exists all these processes to port people across cities all over the country. And so uh, talent mobility uh, here is, is, uh, is optimized. Whereas in emerging markets, first of all, each country sits on its own pot in a, in a manner of speaking. So, sorry, 
So it's not realistic to think, oh, you know, I, um, uh, we have a startup in Algeria and we need the best people, you know, from all over the globe. So I'm going to hire, you know, from anywhere. And after I get to a candidate that I want, even if they live in Poland, I'm just going to give them a relocation package so they can come, come live in Algeria. As you can probably imagine, for a bunch of different reasons, that just does not work. Yeah. Right? So very few people, even if you give them reassurances and like, uh, um, you know, an extra salary for whatever safety and political instability and stuff, it just doesn't work. People are like, this country is like completely irrelevant to, to anything I would want to do. Uh, and so talent and mobility here is different. Uh, the second thing is um, in big enterprises, uh, let me first give it a title, which is um, management, uh, management experience. So with big enterprises, you now have a, there are generations upon generations of tech executives. Right. Like these have existed since the 80s, like people who go in, they understand that running software cycles and sprints is different from running a factory assembly line. And yeah. here's why. Right. And, and, and they do it in a different way. And that innovation cycles in general are different and their economics are different and their balance sheets are different. And so this this um, this field of, of, of knowledge uh, and these practitioners They've existed for decades now, right? Which is why you don't see a lot of like people from GE or Honeywell or U.S. Steel, you know, go to Amazon and uh, and Microsoft and, and Facebook just because they know how to, just because they have management experience, right? So, so this uh, domain-specific experience in technology exists. And so it makes things a little bit easier because, it, you know, while you have, gifted computer science majors, so junior engineers here and there, what you don't have in emerging markets is that sense of just experience. Like, how are you going to run this whole thing? Where should you be focused? How not to get derailed? How to have a process that's realistic that everyone can subscribe to? How to communicate? Um, how to set priorities? How to set deadlines? So this whole how to set KPIs, of course, and make sure their numbers are accurate and 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 and, and easily uh, understandable and digestible. So all of this stuff just comes with the territory. So in 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 countries like Egypt, you don't really have that. Like you have a bunch of excited people who really want to make a difference. Some of them have uncommonly rare technical skills, especially you know. Uh, people graduating from like uh, Cairo University, uh, CS major, Ain Shamsri University, the American University in Cairo. Some of these guys are geniuses. Like they're unbelievably good at algorithms and machine learning and uh, and 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 just programming in general. But but that's not kind of their the issue. The issue we have is that there's a striking absence, or at least a scarcity for now, of people who've kind of seen it all. They've seen products succeed. They've seen products fail all in the technology sphere. They know what to do. Um, so basically leadership, technology leadership is severely lacking. And so you end up having to kind of port over talent from overseas or train people or, or kind of you, 
you, you find solace sometimes in books and webinars and conferences and stuff, but that uh, succession uh, and that pool of talent in that level of seniority doesn't really exist. So that's another challenge. And then I would say the third um, difference is that, and this is really a, uh, a circumstance of kind of how capitalism is interpreted in the U.S., and people are very clear uh, in places like Seattle, San Francisco, New York, Austin, Denver, that um, there are certain expectations for your job. We are here to um, do a good job and just work hard and make money, not to make friends. Or and, and if you make friends, that's fine, but it's kind of a secondary um, consequence of you just being there and being, you know, among coworkers that you like every day, but that's not why you're here. And so you don't do a good job. You go. That's it's as simple as that. Like you, if the manager decides it, or if it's been decided by HR, you are gone in 10 minutes, yeah. like just uh, laptop badge, everything. Just, it's been a pleasure working with you. Good luck with your next venture. And that's it. And so there's a very clear sense of, um, urgency when it comes to making sure you're retaining the highest quality people over and over again, uh, and, and that you're constantly kind of pushing out lower performers. Uh, also, the effect on the culture is that people are, first and foremost, very sensitive about the value of time, and they understand that you don't have to be friendly to ask for stuff, or you don't have to be... Um, you know, super popular to get things done. And so there's a very real level of objectivity tied to you, right? You don't need to tell a story about every time, every feature that you want just to get the engineering team to buy in. Same thing applies for Germany, same thing applies for the UK and Singapore and China and Japan, everywhere, like mostly most of the developed countries uh, where tech products are invented, this is how the culture is. Uh, in, in emerging markets, things are a bit more, um, uh, I guess, emotional and, and, uh, and uh, collegial. So yeah. it's, it's, it's more like being in college again. So you kind of you have to do the dance with everyone. You can't be that binary. You, like even if someone is not doing a good job, you have to, you know, you have to be really honest with them. You have to be really, really thoughtful if you want to push them out. It's going to be a tremendously unpopular thing. Uh, if you're asking stakeholder for, for, for something that's part of their job, like they have to like you. So that element of, of just like being, uh, I guess, very direct or very straightforward is confused with being rude or being uh, ungracious or, or, or just, uh, or tone deaf or context deaf, I would say. And, and so you kind of have to be a little bit more, um, sensitive to, to the people around you, their backgrounds, their, um, uh, their predispositions, how they're used to be, uh, how they're used to, to being asked uh, for tasks, even if this falls squarely within their job. And ultimately it's good because it, it really raises the level of ownership and yeah. the buy-in that people have if you do it right. But it's not good in the sense that it also raises the level of subjectivity and it raises the dependency that people have on a certain communication method to get everything done. 
And sometimes, actually, I would say a lot of the time, it just wastes much, much needed time. Like you could say, hey, I need A, B, C, D. And they'll be like, okay, I'm going to be able to do A now, B tomorrow, C, I actually don't agree with it. So we need a meeting. And then D is actually someone else's job. So that's what you would do in a place like Seattle. In Cairo, it's going to be like, hey, man, where are you? Like, I, like, let's bump into each other in the cafeteria area. Like, I have this, like, really cool idea in mind. I wanted to, to run by you. And you, you kind of have to kind of take them through the thing. But ultimately, like, it'll take more time. But in the end, they'll be like, oh, I'm super bought in. I'll do all four of them right now. Thank you for telling me the whole story. So these are just three of the of the biggest differences I've seen. Got it. So stakeholder management is more emotional driven and personal as compared to uh, what I have. I'll also agree with you. I worked in India and Indonesia. People used to hang out, go for coffee breaks, smoke breaks, and other stuff. But when you're working in California or probably in Japan, you just have, oh, we are going to do this. And Japan actually had a, they have an event where people schedule an outing, meaning they will, as a company or a team, they will go out once or something, a month or a quarter, and then they will get personal, but other time they won't. So it's a very different culture, but yeah, stakeholder management, I totally agree. In this part of the world, at least it is emotional driven, also you cannot be just giving orders, you need to convince people. I think that is a major difference. Yeah, they need to be convinced. And there's no such thing as, um, there's a very famous leadership principle at Amazon that I think is brilliant. Uh, it's called disagree and commit. Okay. And it's it's actually weirdly named because it should be disagree then commit. Yeah. Um, where the idea is like, okay, let's sit down and talk about this idea. Is it good? Is it, is it bad? Should we do it now? Should we do it later? And and analyze it on merit. And ultimately, like any group of smart people will have different opinions. So we will disagree and we will we will do it, you know, with uh, with conviction and of course backed by data. Yeah. But ultimately, there is a decision maker that needs to be in every room who's a tiebreaker, and they need to make they need to make a call. They need to be like, hey, listen, I'm going with A instead of B. Uh, and here's why. And while I understand exactly what these pros and cons are, and I get I get why you guys are really uh, hot about this, I've made my decision. And so you go out of the room as one person, yeah. one direction. Even if you went in disagreeing, you're like, okay, we're doing this now. So you flip to execution mode. Yeah. And and that's okay. And 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 that value is tremendously uh, that that principle is tremendously valuable because. You kind of snap out, you push out any kind of uh, 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 resentments or residual conversations that people were were inclined to have after the decision has been made, right? And and you push out any tactical kind of rebellion attempts to like uh, make choice B work in certain settings, right? And so people are genuinely convinced that being efficient and being homogenous and being coherent is is much better than um, than making the right decision, but after such a long time. So let's move fast. Let's fail fast. And yeah. even if it turns out later that choice B was the right one, then great. Like we got to it very quickly because 
We were operating as one. With, um, with, with Egypt, with India, with Pakistan, with Nigeria, uh, sometimes with South Africa, with, um, let's say, with, with Syria, with Jordan, Algeria, Morocco, sometimes Italy and Spain, definitely Greece. You, you have a bit of a, no, you have to convince me. Like, I get that you're the executive and I'm the, I'm the junior guy, but like, I need, I really need to feel that this is important to do. Yep. Um, and, and part of it is actually that, that very first thing that I was saying about, uh, there's an absence of, of, uh, management, uh, experience, uh, and, and at least generations of tech managers in the region. And so this whole disagree and commit thing, this didn't just come out of Jeff Bezos's head. This yeah. is a tried and tested method of getting things done in the technology sector. So we don't really have that. And people are starting to put principles and ways of work and ways of communication together. But there's only maybe two tech unicorns uh, coming out of the Middle East. And yeah. so the unicorns usually lead that effort. They usually kind of inspire everyone else with like, well, here's how we got here. Like this is these 10, I don't know, whatever commandments yeah. describe the way that we already work. Let's see if there's lessons to learn from them. Mm. And, 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 and ways to kind of reconcile them with the existing culture of, of work in the region. Um, so right now, that just does not exist. So even if people had it in them to disagree and commit, like they don't, like they're, they're, not, they're none the wiser. No one's telling them, listen, this is how we make decisions, right? And so they fall back on, well, all right, in that case, I would like to be convinced and bought into whatever I'm going to work on, especially if I'm going to work super hard. Um, otherwise, I, I really don't trust you guys. Uh, yeah. And I'm not even sure that I'm making the right decision. And therefore, why should I pour my heart and soul out into something that might end up being the wrong thing and attract zero customers and zero revenue? Yeah. So you're going to have to bring me along here. And so, you know, you end up balancing it. I mean, you have documents and data and charts that people can look at and say, all right, I see how they reach this conclusion. But sometimes you just have two very strong sides competing against each other. Both are data-driven. Both are convincing. Both come from research and focus groups, and data analysis. And you just, have to, you just have to break the tie. And you have to – there has to be a, a culture where people, people are at peace dealing with that. Yeah. Um, so that's it's 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 getting there. I've definitely seen a few organizations which have improved uh, in Egypt, uh, particularly, and which have taught their people that, you know, ignoring your opinion doesn't mean that you're not important. It means that we need to go with a plan ASAP, and we can't go with everyone's opinion at the same time. True. It also can mean that your opinion is not as informed as others' opinion. Does that have a reflection on you? No, especially if this is not a consistent thing. Like, if every time you suggest something, people are like, oh, no, that's a, that's a bad decision, yeah. then you, there's probably something wrong with your methods. But yeah. if once in a while, if once every three times, for example, people are like, no, we're, you know, Nabil, we see what you're saying, but we're doing that other thing, then yeah. that's fine. That's a reflection of your vantage point. Yeah. And your thinking process versus others. 
So people are just not able to separate quite yet their own personal identity from uh, from the very different ideas that you can pursue. So it's, you know, it takes some time. I have seen this in India too. So totally agree with that. And uh, I feel you are a VP of product and you will have different people. We talked about the, you know, uh, the personal aspect of people. But uh, when you're building the product, are there any particular considerations? I know your product is a B2B global product, but just from a user perspective in Egypt, are there any culture things which need to be taken care of when you are building a product for people in Egypt? Like, for example, when you are building in Japan, your product needs to be in Japanese. When you are building in uh, Indonesia, your product needs to be coherent with Muslim laws and a couple of things. So are there any culture aspects which need you need to take care no, of not really we're, we're not building a product for egyptians yeah. um, which which is unlike most uh of the startups in egypt yeah. like we're not like you know in the egyptian transportation or or cargo um or or e-commerce space like that's not what we do we're a global company that has customers all over the world from germany and actually most of our customers are in the u.s and china by the way okay. and um, um but if you sorry, have a, hang on a second Uh, sorry about that. Um, so we we create a product. It has a dashboard and an SDK, and and you know we we just do it in English. So there are no particular considerations that we have to abide by because most of our company happens to be in Egypt. Beyond, I guess, you know. Um, paying the rent and making sure our taxes <laughs> are in order. But as far as the product is concerned, we look at the developer, we look at the software manager, we look at the QC manager, we try to understand what they want and we build a product for them. But if, uh, let's say, right now, let's uh, let's say not Instable, but if you're building a B2C product in Egypt, then will there be anything? Yeah. Um, there's going to be a ton of different changes. It depends what your B2C is. But, I mean, most B2Cs uh, in Egypt How are they different that you from could build would involve, would involve some sort of website where you, where you do some selection, and it would involve uh, transportation. And so the differences there are vast. First of all, the selection is always going to be smaller than the selection you get in a place like the UK or, or Japan or Germany or the United States, because um, Egypt has a ton of different uh, obstacles towards importing. And so okay. imported things cost much, much more. You know, some of the categories are, this is intentional in some categories to kind of protect uh, local, uh, local industry. Um, and so A, selection is, is, is definitely smaller. Um, B, uh, it, it, shipping is, is, is less reliable because of two reasons. A, the, um, there's no address convention. So like you kind of write like this, you know, the, the first apartment building on the left in that street that, who's, that nobody's familiar with except like five blocks around that street. And there's no zip code convention. So it, it creates a lot of confusion. 
This has improved a little bit since people started sharing locations on Google Maps, but it's still not perfect. And even when you have the right address, there's no convention to pick up or to even drop off the packages in the right places. Sometimes they're high-rising apartments. In most apartment buildings, there's no like, oh, receiving room or packing room, uh, sorry, package room where people, where all of the vendors, whether it's Amazon, Alibaba, just drop off the deliveries. You know, you've got like standalone houses, you've got uh, farms. So it's, there. there's, there's a lot of confusion over the well. Should I hand the package to the person? Should I leave it on the porch? Well, if I do leave it on the porch, will it get stolen? Whose responsibility is that? Especially if like, you know, most people don't have like ring cameras and stuff. So security um, and, and drop-off convention is just very different. And then the second reason transportation is like the traffic is horrible. The infrastructure is, is, uh, is getting better, but um, setting a specific SLA, uh, you know, you will receive this shipment in two days is hard. Um, and what makes it a little bit harder is that the network problem that you need to solve in order to, to, to have predictable times of delivery for everything is one of the most difficult OR problems anyone can solve. Um, and, and, and it's what made Amazon, Amazon, yeah. like ensuring the predictability of delivery of these different things is so, so hard. Um, and so, yeah, these two things would, would be, would be major. Oh yeah. The third thing is scaling. So, um, in the U S you can build a product and establish product market fit in Boise, Idaho. Right, just just to take a random city, yeah. and then if you've if you've hit the point where you're like, okay, this is working, you can copy paste everywhere with with very modest changes. Yep. Um, because at the end of the day, there's so many things that are homogenous around the country that you take for granted, yep. like the things that I was just mentioning. But in in Egypt, it's not like you know there, there's this. Misperception. There's this um, perception that you, you know, if you get something right in Egypt, then you can go to Sudan and and, and Libya and Israel and Palestine and Jordan and just like do the exact same thing. And that's obviously wrong. Each one of these countries has its own consumer base. They have different priorities. They have different needs. Even if they have the same priorities, you have like different legal uh, frameworks. You have different export and import laws. You have different citizen, citizenship status laws, like for who's allowed to work there and how they can get a working visa. Um, you have different transportation infrastructure, different address conventions. So all of that makes it a much more vacuous problem. Uh, and, and, and it's so much harder to scale across the Middle East and Africa than it is uh, across the U.S. as a continent or across even Europe as a continent, like the European Union relaxed so much so much laws so many of the restrictions that used to separate france from germany from luxembourg from belgium from the netherlands from denmark now it's just like one big thing with relatively open transportation between the countries and that eases it, it makes things so much easier you can be in spain right now and order something that's only stocked in belarus and still have it delivered in two days you yeah. cannot do that if you're in, you know, Qatar and you need something for Mauritania, 
right? Although it's probably the same distance. Got it. That's an interesting problem. Like the problem, uh, the your product is not going to be influenced just by your local conditions, but also from your neighbors and from your external conditions. If I'm guessing it right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'll not take more time. Uh, those were all the questions which I had. Uh, actually, Navel, and it was actually great uh, to know the culture and the challenges as a PM in Egypt. And I'm sure you are building a team, and a lot of those challenges you will be taking care of. And the generation which comes in would be able to learn from your experience, and this will grow. But thanks a lot, Navel, for your time, and thanks a lot for sharing your experience and your journey as a PM in Egypt. Uh, we'll share it out. And let you know uh, when we publish it. Uh, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Uh, I enjoy the conversation. Best of luck uh, with uh, with your new company, and uh, and yeah, I hope we get to speak again. Okay. Thanks a lot, Navel.